It's two o'clock in the morning. You're a policeman in a small country town in northwestern Connecticut. It's not the moon, but the nearest help is at least 20 minutes away. A few weeks before this night, you'd investigated a local organized crime family. But you're not thinking about that now. It's the middle of the night. Your wife and you have had a three-week-old baby, and you're going downstairs to feed your child. And it's at that moment, from the darkness outside, that a shot is fired and a bullet comes into your window. Now, what follows is a trail that lasts years and involves arson, contract killing, and murder. It also involves trials that are suspended and then restarted. And all the way through is sheer, brilliant detective work. I'm Declan Hill, and this is Crime Waves. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. Welcome to Crime Waves. I'm Declan Hill, and I'm an associate professor of investigations at the University of New Haven. Each week, myself and my students, this week it's Aaron Griffin and Eric Krebs, we, we take a look at a particular aspect of investigations. In this episode, we're going to look at a murder in our town, a case that divided the very wealthy and the quite poor in a small town. We want to examine in this episode detective work from just before the adaptation of DNA. And our guide is one of the world's experts in crime scene investigation, Professor Tim Palmback, also at the University of New Haven. He was the Oscar Schindler Scholar for his work linking forensics and human trafficking. He led the Connecticut State Program looking at crime scene investigations for well over a decade. He's been an expert in countless trials, and his expertise is physical analysis and forensic science, patent analysis and crime scene procedures, and advanced criminalistics. He was also one of the lead investigators in the case we're going to discuss. Tim, welcome to Crime Ways. Glad to be here, Declan. Glad to be here. Thank you very much. What happened on that night, two o'clock in the morning, when one of your colleagues had a bullet fired through his house. Well, as surprising as that was, it turns out it really isn't that surprising. And that really is the backdrop of this whole story. Um, this community, it's a very rural community and it's kind of a rags to riches story at that, is in the upper Northwest corner of the state of Connecticut. Um, it, it's, it's rural, it's beautiful. It's scenic. Um, uh, there's people from the uh, century old ore industry, and then there's people from Hollywood that, that live up there. Um, but there's also, and at back certainly in the 80s, there was this one family, and particularly one individual named Richard Dunce, who really just led a, a fear filled control over that region. And um, this was one of many occasions where he would push back against the affront of any police or authority figure would have the audacity to try to stop him. So it was a brief encounter with him earlier in this evening that we, we discussed here uh, resulted in him taking a shot at 
his local resident trooper. It's actually a trooper and his family that he knew well, you know, who lived in that in that town. Um, and then it turns out, which is again a not uncommon theme, is we couldn't solve the case. We couldn't get the extra evidence that you know that there we couldn't have the lab work that probably today we could have had. But in those days, we just really needed corroboration, and we needed witnesses, and we needed testimony. And that world didn't exist in a world where Richard Dunst was free and willing to exact any level of violence necessary for silence. Yeah, I want to. I want to say that um, after you and I discussed this case, I jumped in my car and I drove up to Salisbury, which is the town we're talking about in northwestern Connecticut. And and it is, it's like something out of a movie. Um, there are billionaire estates. There's a phrase here in Connecticut. Uh, there's money in them woods, uh, meaning that there's this beautiful countryside in this state, and you'll be driving around a you know a tiny little laneway, and you'll suddenly look to your left or right. And there'll be this massive billionaire's estate, and I've never seen that kind of money as there are as there is in and around that area. But there's also because I drove up right across the state, I I I I came in through the rural back roads. There's a whole bunch of contrasts, and so it's it's really um, the Appalachian Mountains meets, uh, you know, the, the yacht set. It's a whole mixture of stuff. And as I was going around the town, you know, doing the basic investigation work that you're supposed to do, people still remember this case and they still talk about it and they still know where everybody lived and, and who is still in town and no one has moved away and few people want to talk about it. Yeah, that, that is Salisbury. And, and, you know, to a great extent, they, they do a wonderful job of getting along and respecting one another. And, and it is a fabulous place to live and reside. But, in. Absolutely. But it makes your job as a, as a police officer very, very difficult. How did you start to go about this investigation in such a tight, tight, small community? So um, it, it involved his whole family. So, so uh, Richard was the oldest of three brothers. Um, uh, they didn't have a father figure, interestingly enough. Um, when he was 12 years old, he was, well, I guess you could call it wrestling, but to the extent that um, it, it was so physical that his father had a heart attack and perished during their, uh, their play bout. Uh, and so the family grew up without a father figure. The three brothers um, and many of their, you know, friends and associates lived in either the Northwest uh, area or, or sometimes in Meriden. So there was kind of a, a, a connection point between the center point of the state of Meriden and then this Northwest corner. Um, and, and Richard really was the, the head of the family. And he was for all of their, their criminal endeavors, which, you know, often were petty, burglary and larceny and, and nonviolent, but, um, and then more often than not involved the uh, dealing of, of drugs in the local region. Uh, but he was the guy that kept everybody in place, in check, and, and, and he ran a very, very tight ship. So the case we're talking about here really started, interestingly enough, not with the murder, but with his middle brother, and his middle brother was uh, Roy. And Roy actually held a job and, and it was a municipal job. He worked for the town of Salisbury and um, kind of their highway department and things weren't going well for his job for a variety of reasons. And, and uh, pretty good chance he wasn't going to keep it. And he was severely disgruntled. Um, and then the first of many, you know, really remarkable nights happened. And then this one, a historic landmark, the Salisbury town hall, a simply beautiful building. And you just said you were on main street, you would have driven by, um, now the remake of it, but it was spectacular. It burned to the ground. And um, 
and with an investigation, uh, uh, very quickly, uh, they put together that it was arson very quickly through some investigative leads they were able to generate that they, they identified uh, Roy Dunce as, as being in the area and, you know, a, certainly a good suspect and, and then identified a potential accomplice of his named uh, Maury, Earl Maury. Now, now, just it, it, before we move on to the, the, the next chapter, I just want to underline for our listeners the proportionality. This is a guy who's had a little bit of problems with his employee and his boss and is, quote, disgruntled. So they go burn down the town hall. I mean, that's, that, that, in terms of proportionality, that is, that is a pretty gigantic leap. It is, but it was something symbolic. You know, he knew that, that history and culture mattered to the town. And, and so he could fa- make a statement, you know, and boy, he, sh- he sure did it. And it really did devastate the town. Um, so, yeah. So as, as, that, that, I mean, that town hall, just, I, I'm sorry to, to keep interrupting, but that town hall had been there for 254 years at that moment. It was, it was, it, 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 it predated the war of independence. It was a massive, massive icon in that town. Uh, and to burn it down because you're disgruntled at your job on the highways is extraordinary. Right. And, and I think, you know, fairness to say it was a national historical treasure. It wasn't just, just Salisbury. So yeah, I mean, you're, you're spot on. This, this was, this was crazy. Um, and, and so, you know, I think that helped a little bit in the investigation where enough, enough information was generated um, to put a pretty solid case together, circumstantial case together. You know, uh, there was some physical evidence, but nothing that directly linked um, either Roy or Earl to it. But it was enough, ultimately, to get an arrest warrant. And both Roy and Earl um, uh, were bound over for trial. Um, they also both were able to bond themselves out awaiting, awaiting trial. And what happens then? Well, life goes on a little bit. You know, these things take time. You know, they don't yes. happen. And, and, you know, months and months and months go by. And and then all of a sudden, you know, like we start looking at the clock and we're like, we're getting closer to the trial date. I think we were within a month of it. Um, and, and then, geez, you know, there was that what happened fatal decision. And um, and we can talk about it in a few minutes, but, but for reasons that originally weren't too clear, Earl Morey decides to get in the van with Richard Dunst. Like, why, why would you do that? You know his violent history. And it ended horribly badly for Earl Morey that night. What happened? Well, when we get involved in it, we get a complaint from a, just a delightful woman. She was this elderly woman um, out of Hartford, which is one of our, our capital city and, and one of our, our major cities in the state. It's about an hour and 15 minutes due east of there and um she just loved the fish and she loved serenity and and this tranquil long pond area in salisbury and she'd drive out by herself and just have a delightful morning of fishing and then and unfortunately for her on this occasion as she drove out there she found the body of earl maury uh, alone and desolate um no other cars around in the middle of this rural part of this rural part of the country at a place called long pond he had been killed Eric Morey, the assailant, the assistant for the arson, had been discovered dead. Yeah, more importantly, he was the backbone of the case, right? He, he had agreed to cooperate with the state. He was still going to face trial. He was still going to get some jail time. Of course, it was going to be reduced for his cooperation. And, and I, you know, I think he just wasn't, he had a, you know, a moral fiber. And I think once he had reflection on what they had done, it, it bothered him enough that, that he was willing to be honest about it and testify at trial. So with him gone, the trial was 
over before it started. There was nothing to put that piece of, the pieces back together. But you've also got a dead body floating on Long Pond. You've got an arson attack on a National Historical Site. You've had shots fired through the window of police officers, and you have a body floating. What, what do you do? What's your first step in a, in a, in a situation like this? So a couple things. First of all, the body's actually on the, on the shore of, uh, of, of Long Pond. And, um, and, and look, let's be honest. It, this is a confession. It's terrible to have tunnel vision. It's terrible to be blind. In fact, in a few minutes, you're going to find out about how costly that mistake was. But we all were. The second we saw Earl dead with two gunshot wounds to the back of the head, uh, it was like, where's Richard? There's was no doubt in anybody's mind what happened. Um, but we knew we had to put a case together. And, and we knew back then, pre-DNA world, right? We're right on the cusp of pre-DNA world. Things like fingerprints and tire tracks and footprints um, and, and gathering the shell casings really all mattered. So we began our work. We understood. Uh, I was on the crime scene analysis unit. Um, we understood the importance of this case and how hard it was going to be for us. We actually called back to our lab director, none other than the, the world-famous Henry Lee. Um, interestingly enough, he was flying in from some other part of the country, but he agreed that he could um, divert his flight, jump to a smaller plane, because we were going to land him in a grass airstrip on a little farm in Salisbury and pick him up in our car so he could come down and, and have a look at the crime scene as well. And have you moved the body yet, I mean, or is, is everything still in situ? You've got a, a body on the beach, and you've got presumably tracks around it or whatever you need to do when you're looking at a crime scene. Yeah, so um, we're doing, we, you know, you take a first overview, you look at the area, you plan your attack, you try to make sure that you don't destroy more evidence and pattern evidence than you, you, you capture. And yes. that was conducted, we're starting to take some photographs. And, and one thing was really obvious was, that there was lots of tire tracks and the tire tracks went in and they went around and, and you know, they went near the body and we're like, this, this has got to have some relevance. So we, we began to ID them and look for different ones and put some markers down and say, we're going to come back and we're going to take some photos and we're going we're gonna to cast these. And we even saw a couple footprints, you know, and, and, then, and then we began doing a, a, a closer spiral kind of search around the body. We found three nine millimeter shell casings, um, some different blood areas on the ground indicate that, you know, maybe either what he was actually up and maybe there's a little bit of a struggle here rather than hit just a dump site. And as we're coalescing all these thoughts in all of my days, I have never seen a thunderstorm roll over a small hill with such ferocity and violence has happened. It was less than 30 seconds from the first indication there was a problem Till there were buckets of rain from heaven, and we oh just—my goodness—and and it's it's destroying everything. It's destroying the the tire marks. It's destroying the footprints. It, I mean, it. it what, what do you do? So some of us, some of the guys ran to grab some bar, buckets and tarps. Um, I was one of the guys with cameras, and I'm like, ah, we're just going to shoot as fast as we can shoot. You know, of course, you know, to take what we call photo quality, you know, examination quality photos, you need to be on a tripod and the 90 degrees and rulers. And we didn't have time to do this. So literally within another 30 seconds, I'm drenched, the camera's drenched, everything's drenched, and we couldn't get the tarps out. And anything else that was there is gone other than the body and a few shell casings. Wow. So you've got an arson 
to go back to the original crime of a, of a national historical institution. You've got little evidence on that. The one witness that's turned and is willing to be state's evidence has been killed, his body dumped on this beach beside Long Pond, and now there's a rainstorm which has destroyed 95% of your evidence. <laughs> what are you going to yeah. do now? <laughs> so you do the old-fashioned thing. You, you start uh, trying to talk to people, trying to find people, trying to ask questions. Uh, we were able to find people within the community in Salisbury that actually saw Richard Dunst and Earl Morey that night in the same bar in close proximity to each other. So that was a really good start. We also had another really interesting twist as we began to do a little information. And, and then we went back and we said, give us all the police logs, not only in this region, but local police. Let's see what, what, what's happening. You know, this was the world where, you know, you didn't have the data pool you had. Now, if you wanted to know what happened in a jurisdiction or another police department, you picked up the phone and say, hey guys, what happened last night? Well, two things of interest happened. One, in this very remote little pond, there was a call for service from somebody the night before who had gone down. It wasn't clear what they were doing. They probably went down to drink some beers and hang out, but their, their car battery died. And so they needed a local tow truck that was sent and dispatched by the local police when they got a call for assistance. The tow truck came and the tow truck um, grabbed this person's car and, and it backed around and it turned around. Now, at this point, we don't know the relevance of it, but we eventually find the tow truck, we look at the tires, we take some photographs of the tires, and we, and we make a, a tentative match. So we're gonna be a definitive match because we don't have the right photos and castings, but, but the lug tread patterning, we pretty much identify what are the tire tracks at the scene. The dominant part of that, that information is the tire tracks from the woman coming to fish, as well as from responding police vehicles, and yet another unknown vehicle are all on top of the tire track. And so that tire track we now know um, from the tow track was around 11 p.m. So now we've got ourselves a window whereby um, we know that, that this, this activity had to take place. Now, the other interesting part that came out in uh, a variety of phone calls to some small local police departments, one of them says, hey, not for nothing, the name's familiar, this dunce name and um i got uh in a town of canton which is about maybe 40 40 minutes east of here interestingly enough on the way back to where richard dunce's home would be he said they stopped a a raw a raw yeah ronnie dunce his youngest brother at at around 4 a.m with an unidentified occupant in his car for running a red light and they issued him a written warning and so we're like, who could that be? And if that's Richard, then he's now got his brothers doing his deed, picking him up, moving around, um, and they're out and about on, on that night. That was put together in an arrest warrant or search warrant application, along with some other generalizations, which were all true about the, uh, the violent history of Richard, about, about um, what he had done in the past, about how the fact that, that Earl was now executed would impact on the trial and, and painted a, a very compelling, rational, probable cause doctrine, which ultimately a, both a prosecutor proved and a judge signed. Which is what you need, by the way, to get a search warrant anywhere in North America. You need that kind of evidence 
So, you know, it's, it's this myth that a police officer can just walk into somebody's house or, you know, as they have in movies, uh, walk in and, and just grab their car. You need that kind of beginning of an evidence trail to say we want to, we want to pursue this evidence trail. You Absolutely. put that document together and what do you do? Do you seize his car? Do you, do, you, do, you, do you go into his house or do you do both? So what we asked for was um, uh, access to or, or the right to search to it, his registered van and, and his apartment. He lived in an apartment in Unionville, which was uh, neighboring to this Canton community, which is where the, the police stop uh, occurred. Um, and we surveilled his apartment. And interestingly enough, right away, there wasn't his van. But then a couple days later, it showed up. Now, later on, through more inquiries, we find out that Torrington Police Department, a little big, bigger police department, but yet halfway again in between the murder scene and Canton, his van was um, uh, found in a parking lot of a, a, I think it was a grocery store, but some establishment overnight that caught the attention of a local police officer. So he ran the plate to say, what's going on here? And then let it go of that. But there was a record of him running that inquiry. And that was even before 4 a.m. on the night in question. And that was Richard's van. It looks like eventually he also had car trouble. So as he's trying to flee the scene, his car breaks down. He calls brother number three. And, um, and brother number three comes to the rescue. All of which is helping you get that chronology, that all-important timeline that we speak about often in crime ways of where you're putting it together in an investigation and you're putting down markers in time about potential ideas, potential work here. What's your next step? You've, you've got this search warrant. Do you, do you start to execute it now? Or what do you do? Yeah, so interestingly enough, it's time to do it, right? We, we've got the search warrant. We see the van. Um, I, I remember we had a briefing that morning saying, you know, is this a high-risk search? And we have our SWAT team effectuate it um, because of potential for weapons. Um, you know, he, he, he had had many incidences with firearms in the past, um, violent person, every reason to believe was high-risk. But we decided we'll take it ourselves. So, so our, our investigative team um, took it ourselves. And, and um I remember we, we went to the door. We, uh, we didn't have a no-knock, so we had to knock and announce ourselves, put ourselves in further risk. And we knock on the door. We get no reply. We knock on the door. We get no reply. We go to the superintendent for the, um, the compound complex so we don't end up having to break the door down. And, and he gets us a passkey, and, and we go in, and it's a second-floor condo. We're about three-quarters of the way up the second floor, and boom, you just hear this loud movement, and, ju- and Dunce jumps around the corner and goes boo and starts laughing, you know, and it's one of those things you're like, he really could have gotten shot. And, you know, you wonder, is he trying to bait us? I mean, this is insanity. I mean, all of our hearts stopped. It was a good hour before any of us, you know, really started breathing any semblance of normalcy, but we did. And we effectuated our search. Um, now, and, what- and, and, but, but I got, I've got two thoughts when I hear that one is that he's taunting you. And the other one is, did he know you were coming? Did somebody, is there a possibility that somebody somewhere made a call to him to say, hey, the guys are coming, destroy anything that you've, you've got? Yeah, I don't think so. I think A, it's, he's taunting us, and B, he knew. He's been down that road before, and he was saying, you know what? I know I'm the obvious suspect, and I know you're coming, and I'm telling you right now, you're not going to get me. No matter what you do, you're not going to get me. And so um, what, what we didn't find is we, we didn't find a gun. We didn't find uh, ammunition. You know, that'd be illegal for him to have. He's a convicted felon. We found throwing knives, brass knuckles, 
stun guns, a variety of other weapons that that more or less were legal for a person in his capacity. Um, but we didn't find bloody clothing and and really nothing else. You know, um, we impounded his van. We brought his his van back for um, for processing, and and that began to yield some some inform some information of value to us. What do you mean by processing? So, you know, to give ourselves more time, you know, we can't bring his apartment back. We, we, so we do that search there. But by bringing it back to a police lab, you know, and, and the garage where we can spread everything out and go slow and inventory literally every single nut and bolt and everything we find in there and look for trace evidence and look, you know, just on the possibility that the, 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 the victim may have been in there, we, we do that. We, we go through his comb hour after hour after hour, his van, looking for any potential source of evidence. And, and this, is, this is the late 80s. So now, if somebody had been in a van, you would start the DNA swab. And, and, and the, the DNA is such a rich mine that you can, you know, just a few molecules, a few, you know, a hair, you've, you've got your victim in that van. But this is pre-DNA. So you've got a list now of, what, hundreds of items, and you're going through them. Is that right? That's right. Yeah. You know, it was one of those kind of cluttered vans and there was just a lot of stuff in there. But, but a few things jumped out at us. Um, one was, uh, and, and these two, by the way, we didn't know the value right, right away. One, there was a little light bulb in the center console in the cup holder. Um, later on, we identify that as a dome light bulb. More interesting, when we finally find the victim's car, the victim's car was behind a post office in a, in a neighboring town called Sharon. It was found a few days later because it was so tucked away in the back um, with a visible blood transfer on the driver's side rear quarter panel. And as we entered the car, the dome-like cover above the driver's seat was taken off and the bulb was missing. And we're like, what the heck? What's this about? So hypothetically, what we thought must have been the case is Dunce got in his car with him, and and Dunce was gonna was, was rode to him to this location. This probably was the vehicle that got there. Dunce was thinking, "I'm gonna shoot him right in the car. I'll I just want to make sure that that when he opens the door and gets out, he doesn't have a chance to see you know that I got a gun in my hand." And 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 but beyond that, something else happened because we later figure out and, and and deduce that that Earl Morey actually did get out of the van. So. We had this dome light bulb that looked like it could have and, and likely came from the victim's vehicle. There was also a singular piece of big red chewing gum lying on the floor of the front passenger seat. At the moment, again, we didn't know what it meant. Later on, we find an open pack of big red gum. Yep, you got it, in the right front pant pocket of the deceased. Wow. So you've got these two pieces of potential evidence linking the car and the victim with this, with each other. What, what, what's your next step when you, you know, I mean, you're now looking at light bulbs and chewing gum. What, what's your next step? And there was one more piece before we leave the van. Please. When, when we open the door and we look at the rocker panel running in, it was a piece of chrome metal that was very well polished. So it's an area that we would look for footprints or patterned evidence or fingerprints. And um, we applied a little powder on top of it, little dusting powder to enhance the patterns. And we did find some uh, footwear impressions. Really interesting. One of them was a parallel line footwear insole pattern that looked very similar to the, the pattern we saw on the victim's shoes. And, and it was on the passenger side. So it was a further potential that maybe came in there. 
The other pattern we saw was a very interesting hexagonal shoe pattern. I'll talk about that in a few minutes because we learned something really unique about that later. Keep going. This is fascinating. And again, I want to remind our listeners, this is pre-DNA. It's 95% of the crime scene has been erased in a freak and sudden rainstorm as the investigators, the detectives are just about to start their work there. We're grasping at straws here in terms of how do we put a case together? How do you get this? And we've got a chewing gum, some patterns of shoes, and a light bulb. Next step, please, Tim. So we started with the light bulb, and, and we're like, well, let's look for fingerprints. And there weren't identifiable fingerprints. So the easy thing wouldn't happen. You figured, ah, you had to grab it. But for whatever reason, there weren't identifiable fingerprints. DNA, easy case. We didn't have that available to us. So the next thing we said, well, you know what? When you take a dome bulb, you push it into these two little clips. And when you push it into the two little clips, we should get microscopic striated marks or tool marks. And in fact, you do. And our question was, are those unique enough that we could identify a bulb having come from an individual dome-like clip set? It, in other words, could we show that the, dole, the bulb that we found in, in uh, Richard's car have come out of the victim's car? And in a bunch of kind of lab-based experimental work, which is the basis for good testing, the answer to that is no. There were similarity marks, every reason to believe that it could have come from the victim's car, no capacity to establish that. So piece of circumstantial evidence, we push it to the side. The next thing we do is we, we try to tackle the, the gum issue. And, and at this point, we didn't have a clue, but we knew somebody who knew a lot about gum. Wrigley's, biggest gum manufacturer at the time. So we made some phone calls and found out um, that most of the big red gum is made down in Atlanta, Georgia. And so we get uh, a couple of our detectives get some plane tickets, they fly down there, and they get a lesson in gum 101. And, and, and for the starter point, which I never knew, if you, if you take a pack of gum and you look at the foil wrap around the gun, if you look at it carefully, there's an embossed number in that. And that's a quality control feature. And it tells you the exact machine in what state, in what, you know, here it said a machine in Atlanta, Georgia, and exactly this machine is the one that made that, that, that imprint of gum. So looking at that imprint and then looking at the imprint in, uh, from the stick of gum from, from Earl's car, they were from the same basic machine. So we're like, well, how relevant is that? So the, the, the manufacturing people say, well, oh, you got to understand, you know, when we're doing big red gum, we run it, you know, as a process through a couple of machines. We make several million sticks and then you know, we, we kind of move on to a different flavor of gum, um, you know. And so it's not uncommon for a couple million sticks of gum to come through a machine. But they said, look, here's what we think we're able to do for you. That same foil wrapper that you talked about, it gets cut by a cross cutter. And, and so you've got these two edges that could have microscopical tool marks and kind of like fiber flow. So we went out and bought 100 packs of gum, and we spent a lot of time in the lab with, with microscopes looking at this and going, they're right. And in fact, when the, when the company sent us um, pieces of this wrap that they confirmed were one time co-joined, we could affect what we call a physical match, which is a 100% proof that these two pieces of gum were side by side. So we got all excited saying, we got it, we got it, we got it. And, and the company said, well, before you get too excited, let us tell you how this happened. So we've quickly learned that, that there are multiple cutters and multiple wrappers, and all of this creates this gum that goes into this big bin. 
So there's tens of thousands of pieces of aluminum wrapped gum in there. And then a little picker hand grabs, you know, seven of these, puts them on a conveyor belt, and they become a pack of gum. So prob there's a probabilistic fact that, yes, maybe two pieces that have the physical match could be in the same pack, but they also don't necessarily have to. And so as we did our 100-pack base study, we did find, and it was a very small percentage, it was under 5%, I think, sticks of gum that could be conclusively co-identified as being in the same path. Um, we held our breath after doing the background test, did the examination in this case, and we weren't so lucky. So once again, we're stuck with nothing more than a circumstantial so, piece of evidence. So these are circumstantial. We've got the light bulb, which unfortunately after a test you say, you know, it's really coincidence that the victim's car is missing its light bulb and you find the light bulb in the murderer's car or the suspected murderer, you've got a piece of chewing gum missing from the victim's pack, which the same brand is found in the murderer, suspected murderer's car. But both of those can't be 100% or 95% within that range of probability saying linking them. What's next? The footprints, I presume, those, those footprints yeah. that you found on the side panel of the door. And, and there was now one of the new technologies that was emerging within the forensic community was, um, uh, uh, and this particular one came Foster and Feynman, it was called Soulmate. It was a computer program where they went to all the major manufacturers of footwear, and principally athletic footwear, distributed throughout the world and said, would you volunteer to assist law enforcement by giving us an, a, an image, an inked image, as well as a photograph of um, the, the sole pattern of your shoe and then, you know, the basic outline of the shoe such that police could identify from a footprint it is seen the maker and even maybe the type of shoe. So when we did that, we found out this shoe was a foot joy. Foot joys were produced in uh, Seoul, Korea, uh, but were just barely coming into the U.S. It was a matter of months that they had been produced in the U.S. So the amount of stores that sold them in the U.S. were limited and in fact, there was only one of them in Connecticut, and it was in Torrington. So it was right where we needed it to be. And, and, and in checking with them, we found out that they did carry that. So it was potential that that FootJoy sneaker pattern could have been put on a shoe that was purchased right in the right spot at the right time. Now, this isn't the day where you, you do a, a, an online analysis because everything is a digital transaction. This is old, good old-fashioned cash, right? And if you use a credit card, then they use a hand carbon copier, none of which we had. So we got actually another search warrant to go back to the house. And, and, and one of the major rational reasons and probable cause was say, we need to look for evidence of that purchase. That could, or anything else that could show that, that he made the purchase of that pair of footwear, um, that FootJoy sneaker. Now, in going to the house, we didn't find any receipts or anything would indicate that, but we did find something that turned out to be really, really interesting. What was that? It was a family photo album, which, again, we're dating ourselves here, but, you know, you and I know, right? Um, yeah, you know, I, I, I'm just, I, I want to emphasize as well for our listeners, you're not only doing this for the shoes and the chewing gum and the light bulb, you're also working your way through hundreds of leads, potential leads in this van. Uh, and, and the amount of work that's going on is extraordinary to, 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 to be pursuing and chasing these, these leads down. 
What did you find in the apartment that was so key? There's a family photo. What was on it? So in looking at the family photo, you know, again, it didn't seem like it was going to be that helpful. But as we got to the end of the photo album, you know, which means the more recent photos, it was like, oh, my God. And it was a picture of Richard sitting on the lawn tractor wearing what looks like a pair of foot choice sneakers. Now, remember, in this database system, um, in addition to showing us the sole pattern, that hexagonal sole pattern associated with the shoe, there's a side view, so we can actually see a photograph of it. And so looking at the two photos, we're like, yeah, that, that really does look like a foot joy. And I, I believe we even got to the point where we could even see a logo when we, when we kind of blew, went back to the lab and blew that image up. So we were really confident it was a foot joy sneaker. Um, the other relevant part of that photograph was he wasn't sitting on the lawn tractor alone. He had his son, very young son, two to three-year-old, sitting on his lap on the, on the lawnmower, but his son was wearing a birthday uh, cap. and so it was readily apparent that this was a birthday celebration. So little more research to find out that his son did in fact have a birthday and that um, it, was, it was within a two to three week parameter before the murder. That being said then, this, is, this now becomes our strongest indicator that Richard is wearing a pair of foot choice sneakers two to three weeks prior to the murder. And, and remind you again, this pair of foot chase sneakers has that hex parallel kind of a pattern on the bottom of the, uh, the sole. Um, and that pattern we saw in two places. We saw it at the scene next to the body of Earl Morey in the dirt. And we saw it on the, uh, the running board stepping into his van, um, which is where we also saw the same or a different footwear impression that we associated back to the victim all on Richard's van. Is that enough to go to trial? What, what, what happens next? So two things are happening here. One, the prong of witnesses is, 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 is just crashing and burning. And people are basically, hell no, pardon me, hell no, we're not talking to you because we'll be killed. Like, you know, no. So there's a reign of terror over Salisbury and the surrounding areas at that time on the, around this case. It's just seen what's happened to Eric Morey. He's been discovered. His body's been discovered near Long Pond on a beach of Long Pond. And they don't want to be the next, potentially the next corpse. Yeah. And as long as Richard's out on bond, they're not talking. And and man, we had 25 amazing detectives working this case. And and it was like banging their head against the rock. So we knew we needed a type of physical evidence link. um, And we began to focus on the gun, which we didn't have. We didn't know. And we had no idea where it was, but we had the shell casings. And in looking at the shell casings, you can look at what we call class characteristic transfers that can be associated to the type of a firearm that fired them. And, um, and we also recovered one of the projectiles at the autopsy. And so looking at that, we can actually get more information by looking at the landing groove pattern on the recovered projectile, which tells us something about the type of a barrel of the gun that bullet passed through. In doing all that, we get a list of the types of weapons, that nine millimeter weapons that could have fired that type of a round. And one of them was a Smith & Wesson. Now Smith & Wesson's a very popular gun. Um, and so we, we took, we, you know, hedged our bets saying, let's just assume that, they, that this gun is something they stole and they came into possession by it, you know. So we said, let's look in the entire Litchfield County region um, of every Smith & Wesson 9mm that was stolen in the last 10 years. We gave ourselves a big window. And there were dozens and dozens and dozens of guns that fit that profile. 
Um, and it took about three to four months. I remember it was a, it was a long way of a lot of detective manpower before finally one of them came in, you know, just ecstatic. He says, I think I got it. There was nine years prior to the homicide, a, a, uh, a burglary or reported theft of a nine millimeter firearm, Smith and Wesson from a, a residence, um, that in Torrington, right, right adjacent to where uh, all this thing took place. And guess who the caretaker was? None other than Roy. Good old Roy, the one who was on trial anyway for the arts and fire. So that guy went missing at a time when Roy was there and we're like, boy, let's, you know, we need a break. Can we get a break? So we went, we finally went back to that homeowner nine years later and said, good news, bad news, we don't have your gun, but we have a lead maybe that will tell you where the gun went, if that'll give you any solace. By any chance, by any chance, do you have shell casings? Because if you fired that weapon and you kept shell casing, you know, people reload and for other reasons they keep them, we might be able to link that gun back to the homicide scene. And the owner said, you know, I don't. And then he thought a minute longer. He goes, you know what? He goes, I only fired that gun a couple times. And when I fired it, I fired it at my grandfather's farm. Where's your grandfather's farm? Upstate New York. A eh, couple hours away. How long ago was that? Oh, 10, 15 years ago. Where did you fire it? Well, he had, he had, a, barn, he had a barn and some fields, but in the, in the back of one field was a really big oak tree, and we always used to stape our targets to it, and we'd shoot it there. So we grab a metal detector, some rakes, and certainly camera, and, and, and boy, we're just like, come on, we need a break. But the, none of us, none of us expect this to work. And we show up at the farm and, 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 and meet the family and, and take a walk to the, to the back lot. And it was a big farm. And yeah, there's pretty obvious big, big tree back there. And, 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 uh, the owner said, yeah, like, you know, I'd stand here and I'd shoot that way. And, uh, you know, of course you don't see IE nine or 10 years, more, had, 10 to 15 years. So 10 to 15 we, years ago, he'd been standing in the backlog and where you are now praying and hoping that there's something going to be able to found on this ground. Yeah. And so looking around, we don't see anything. We rake up some leaves sift through them, we don't see anything. We look again on the ground, we don't see anything. Pull up the metal detector. Beep, 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 beep. We come up with about a half a dozen casings that were now about a half inch below, you know, like, you know, leaves had fallen and decomposed and they're more or less kind of caught. And they're all nine millimeters and they're, they're kind of lousy condition, but we bring them back. So we bring them back to our farms examiner. They clean them up. They throw them under the scope, and we get the one call. Oh, my God, we're waiting for this phone call. That's the gun. They said, we, will, we, we can show you. We can validate it. We are certain, and we will testify the gun that fired those casings from that farm is the same gun that fired the casings on Long Pond that, curl, that killed Earl Morey. So that leads to the strongest bit of evidence with all of other circumstantial evidence that we now generate an arrest warrant. We submit the arrest warrant. It gets approved by our prosecutor, gets approved by the judge, and we bring Richard in with a charge for murder. And then? Well, none of us saw this coming. And if we had, uh, I put it on my top 10 professional regrets, this is way up there. Um, time goes on now. Um, he gets, you know, he's in jail. We're starting to reinvest, to reinterview people. Not all of them are willing to talk, but things are looking like it's going to get a little bit better. Like maybe we have a shot. 
Um, and, and of course, Richard's got a, a, a really good defense team working for him. Um, uh, you, you know, this was the darndest thing. I've been sued a million times, a little bit of a segue here. But one of his, his attorneys arrested, uh, uh, charged us civilly for interfering with conjugal rights and the rearing of his child while we were executing a lawful arrest. So we actually had to go back and defend ourselves against a civil suit for executing a lawful search warrant. Uh, again, just one of his classical har- harassment forms. Um, but what his attorney did, which was much more valuable than that, is uh, he made a claim in a filing before the court that the affidavit, by its four corners, did not contain sufficient probable cause to allow us to have the very first search that we had at the Dunce's house. So now, right back at the beginning, I mean, right back, this is pre the shoes, this is pre the gum, this is pre the gun. It's that very first search warrant. The defense lawyer said, hey, you didn't have enough evidence to serve that. All that legal stuff that you used to get that thing. Was he right? What? Well, we were just angry. Like, yeah, okay, this is just a good lawyer doing what they do. And I, I do respect that. But from our point of view, we're like, you know, you know once again, we got to dig ourselves out of this hole. But we all looked at the affidavit, and, and to say we got sick to our stomach, Declan, uh, we're like, oh, my God. And then we have a conversation with the prosecutor, and she goes, oh, my God. And What do you like, mean, oh, my God? What do you they're mean? right. It wasn't a good warrant. Wow. Because what had happened was, in everybody's mind, he was so notorious. Everything he did was so well known to the community. Everybody had investigated cases and tried cases and prosecuted cases. We knew everything about him and all the innuendo that we knew that certainly would lead anybody to the conclusion it had to be him and that we had every right to search his place was in our mind and it wasn't on the document. And tunnel so vision, tunnel vision, tunnel vision, tunnel vision. That, 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 that moment when the investigators realize they've been focusing too much and too long and too hard. Yeah. And so the horrible happened. The judge said that warrant goes. And we are in the state of Connecticut, which has like what they call the fruit of the poisonous tree doctrine. Now, it's not common in many states, but it is here. And it simply says the following. If you have an invalid, unlawful interaction, in this case would have been our first search warrant, any evidence that follows that logically could have been associated or derived because of that event is now inadmissible. So all your work on the shoes, the gum, all this stuff has to be thrown out. All of it. And and, and some of our other evidence about transfer patterns of blood and our interpretation it all goes, and we quickly realize we can't win this trial. And they make another motion to reduce his bond. Motion is granted, and pending, you know, um, our reapplication with additional evidence, a, a new indictment or a new, a new arrest warrant. Guess who's back on the street? And is this the time when the contract killing, the 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 contract for the killing is is discussed? Well, he's now back on the street for about six months. And, um, and we are frantic. We're like, we, we, we've got to find a way around this. So, you know, now with the connection of the gun, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're really confident this is him. Um, and boy, we're working hard. We're really working hard. And, and then this really strange, strange day came forward. 
an undercover federal officer who had spent a tremendous year's worth of work getting undercover in one of the larger Connecticut crime families um, and, and one operated out of New York City. So we're, we're talking Lucchese, Bonanno, that kind of level of, of, of organized crime. Exactly that kind of level of organized crime. And one that was known to have you know very strong impacts, not only in New York City, but also in Connecticut and Rhode Island and this whole region. And, and what this undercover officer heard was a, um, a request for murder for $10,000 coming from, um, uh, from Richard Dunst, you know, a, a little indirectly, but, but they were able to piece it back together that it had to be coming from Richard Dunst for the murder of my lieutenant and, and who was in charge of the investigation. Um, and it was very apparent then what this was an attempt to do. It was like, if you guys aren't paying attention and you don't remember my history, you don't remember the fact that I won't respect you or your families, let me remind you once again who you're dealing with here. And, um, and we, we, we remember that the very first thing is a bullet fired through a police officer's window at two o'clock in the morning when he's nursing his, his three-week-old baby. Now you have an approach to one of the big five families saying, hey, I want a police officer killed for 10,000 bucks. A police officer, somebody running a murder investigation. What happens? Well, from our point of view, it just gave us all the more reason to work hard. Um, uh, you know, uh, and, and our boss, I mean, to this day, uh, Jim Hiltz, I, I can't say enough about him. I think he was just phenomenal. Um, and it didn't waver him one single bit. Um, he, he was as, as diligent and, and, and focused on doing the job and doing it well as he ever was. And, um, but we knew, we knew we needed to do something different. We knew as long as Richard was on the street, we, we weren't going to win this battle. So the decision was made is, hey, you know what? Let's go back to his roots. He has, and by all indications, he still is a, a, a drug dealer in the area. If the issue is getting him off the streets, let's see if he's engaged in, uh, in criminal activity. So they did a, few, a little bit of drug work in the area, developed um, enough, enough probable cause, which, by the way, in the state of Connecticut, you need a lot, and, and convinced a three-judge panel that, um, to give us a, a – uh, a phone tap and a, and a phone log against Richard Dunst and, and for the purpose of his narcotics business and his narcotic uh, dealing. And so up, up at one. Now, interestingly enough, you know, uh, you, you know, there are rules about that. And, and I'll tell you where we, as we, there should be, we play by the rules and there yep, were, as you should, times when, when, you know, he would pick up a, 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 you know, start having phone conversations that may have led to information about the homicide but if it, if it would, could have involved an attorney or somebody of a privileged thing, poof, you throw the switch. And, and you know, I'm, it, it, and we did it. And we played by the rules. And, we've, and we allowed the, the intercepts to only deal by uh, his drug trafficking. But he did it. He absolutely unequivocally did it. And, 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 um, and, and so we actually get a date where he was going to make a delivery. And, um, and, and the, uh, the investigative team had found that what he would do is he would get a, 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 a block of cocaine and he had a secreted place in a tree in the middle of nowhere in Salisbury in a box, a waterproof box that he would deliver it to. And, and, um, and, and so we, we set up um, our, our surveillance team and our SWAT team, you know, hidden in the woods with, you know, camp, all kinds of things. And, um, 
and, and we were, you know, in the backdrop, we were in the backdrop and we were going to just be hanging around, um, you know, when all was said and done, if this happened to go collect the evidence. And, um, and, and I remember kind of the co-word that something was broken um, and that, that, you know, everything was going wrong, but, but, but they saw or perceived that, that he was in possession of the cocaine was yellow Corvette at 96. So it would sound like a, a police officer on, on a radar patrol. And, and, um, and the yellow Corvette at 96 yell came out and, 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 uh, it was just fortuitous. It was, it was, I was in a, an undercover car with one of my other colleagues and we were on a dirt road about two and a half miles north of, of where the, the drop site would be. Well, in fact, he did go to the drop site. He did take a, 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 a brick of material and put it exactly where he was supposed to put it. And then he took was seen leaving with some smaller packets of, of, of what looked like white material and plastic bags, likely drugs, and get back in his car. Um, there was a miscommunication with the, the surveillance and SWAT team as to how, how much they wanted to see and how much they wanted to get on, you know, record um, before they let him get his vehicle. But, but that little bit of a hiccup gave him enough time to escape. And so, um, we just were on, on one of the many, and there were many dirt roads there, and, and we blocked off the vehicle and um, just blocked off the road, and he came. And all of a sudden, uh, there Dunce's car comes. He sees our vehicle. He locks up his vehicle. Um, he, he backs up, and as he's backing up, we're seeing uh, packets come out the window, and, and he, he does kind of a U-turn, and he tries to go on another dirt road, and, and by the time we converged and, and, and took him into custody. So all of that kind of crazy theatrics, what it led to was uh, a solid narcotics case against him. Uh, a, a arrest warrant was issued. It was obtained. He was arrested. Um, and, and again, given you know, his, his violent nature and past criminal activity um, and the seriousness of the charge, he was brought back into custody and put on, um, I think it was just an exceptionally high bond, one that, that he couldn't make. So we had him once again off the streets. And this time in the arrest, you'd actually had a bit of luck because one of the things that's clear to all our listeners is that it, during the course of this investigation, you had appalling luck. From the very first time that the body is found on the beach at, uh, of Long Pond, you had that rainstorm. You had a search warrant that you guys badly wrote. You, 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 know, you, you had your tunnel vision on. You had a series of bad luck and really dogged detective work, really dogged investigations involving chewing gum, involving shoes, involving light bulbs in cars, involving the gun and tracking down where it was fired 10, 15 years before and, and with a metal detector and hours from your locale. What happens then? You've got this, this guy, he's now in jail, facing a really substantive trial on drug trafficking. What happens? Well, we knew that one of his two brothers, uh, the younger of them, um, uh, you know, Moore was trying to, from all due appearances, live somewhat normal of a family life. Um, he had a couple of kids. He had his own problems. He had some previous arrests, some um, drug involved, but they were more or less for possession, I believe, not not use. Um, and, and so the and yet and yet he was enough of a part of this transaction that that a a conspiracy case was built and effectuated against him, and he too was under arrest. Um. And and uh, and even even the older brother, uh, there there was enough action in between them that he was also arrested on a conspiracy. So 
we then went back to the brothers and we said, look, um, he's not getting out. Um, or, or this isn't going to change, you know, and, 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 and the narcotics alone got him locked up and, and we're not giving up on, on getting the evidence we need to prove the murder case. And, um, and you know, you've got your own problems. You're going to go to jail on your own accord unless you really want to try to turn your life around and, um, and, and cooperate with us. And, um, and the younger brother did. And, and so we began to get some confidence. We got some, uh, he confirmed that he picked his brother up that morning. He confirmed he drove him back to his house. He even talked about the fact that on the way he, uh, he stopped over, a, a, a bridge that went over a river below and threw, uh, clothing, including sneakers. He talked about seeing him throw sneakers over the railing, you know, before he got to his house, you know, it's like, well, explains why we didn't find him. Um, and, and so pieces began to come together. Even some of the interviews in the community, while, while they weren't compelling, um, we now had several people actually see uh, Richard Dunst and Earl leaving the bar together that night, like together. And so the, the circumstantial nature of our case began getting stronger and stronger and stronger. And then we had the strength, the absolute strength of, of the gun. Um, and when presented with that fact, even Roy admitted, yeah, yeah, I stole that gun. Yeah we had possession of that gun within the family. So we had a great case, albeit it was going to be challenging. And it seemed like, you know, in this particular case, no matter what we did, we caught a short straw. Um, and then finally, finally, we get a very interesting turn to the case. What happened? What, what, what did the gods do to you this time? They smiled on us and they smiled on an entire community. And, and I say that with some jest because, you know, the loss of a human life is a loss of a human life. And, and uh, even a broken human life. But, but Richard died in jail. He had a heart attack, just as his father had. Um, wow. And it was over. It was over. So the same thing, you know, it, 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 it is, if you excuse the hyperbole, something like a Greek tale. He inadvertently or inadvertently kills his father at the age of 12, and gosh knows what trauma that's going to give to a, a young guy. His road goes wrong in life. And decades later, he dies of a heart attack in jail, facing murder, facing all kinds of trials, attempted murder, contract killings, um, you know, drug trafficking, all this stuff. Tim, one of the other issues, and, and I'm really hoping you can come back um, at another time, is that you're dealing with another high-profile murder at the same time, and you're dealing with possible harassment and, you know, shots fired through fellow officers' windows. Tell us a little bit before you go about those circumstances around this case, all the other stuff that you guys were dealing with. Well, the, the shooting at our, at, our, at our fellow trooper was sufficiently in the past. Like there was many years before it and, and we didn't have any additional evidence that we could tie him to. So that one we really just had, had to walk away from. Um, but, but at the exact same time, um, within one, you know, two weeks, I believe, of, of Earl Morey's murder, um, this, this, this woman, this airline stewardess in uh, Newtown, which was also in our jurisdiction, went missing. And her husband, uh, none other than Richard Crafts, um, uh, an air, airline pilot, former CIA agent, um, becomes the suspect. And, and we now are stuck with a, a, a murder case with no body. And, and we're once again pulling uh, bone fragments and bits of mail and, and hair and 
and, and wood fragments for wood chippers and nail polish to make identifications. And, and just that, that case becomes famous and becomes famous in it, both in the public imagination there's been a number of movies and a number of TV series based on it, but also uh, in terms of detective work, in terms of the, the implication of DNA. I don't want to spoil that one because that, that is the basis for the Fargo case. That's the basis for many things. I do want to check one fact. I thought it, at, at a certain point, you and your fellow officers were keeping watch in the driveway. You would, you would drive up to the, your fellow officer's home and, and spend the night there just to make sure that everything was okay. Yeah. So, uh, you, you know, it was, um, we were strapped to put it mildly. I, I mean, I, I mean the amount of work that and pressure we were under, um, I can tell you, uh, I worked 32 weeks straight without a day off. Um, at that time, uh, my wife had given birth to one of our children and, and she was like, you haven't been home in over a half a year. Dear God, it's their birthday. One of the birthdays. Can you have that off? And I remember it had to go all the way up the chain of the command of the state police to say, yeah, he can have a day off. Um, so we, we were beyond exhausted. But in addition to that, um, our, our fearless, wonderful leader uh, was like, hey, you know, don't worry about it, guys. You know, I'll, t- I'll take care of myself. And we're like, you know, no, boss. We're, we're not sleeping at night thinking anybody can hurt you. So we were rotating through, um, you know, uh, two of us a night a week. Were, uh, would spend the night in the in his driveway in our car, just uh, it added protection for him and and just a peace of mind for us, that, just to let him know uh, we got your back. This isn't okay with us. Tim, thank you very much for your work on this case, and thank you very much for coming on Crime Ways. I think the the thing all our listeners want to do is please come back. We, we'd love to to discuss more cases with you. We'd like to discuss uh, police detective work. Uh, so, Tim, thank you so much for coming on Crime Ways. That's my pleasure, Declan. Thank you for having me. And, um, you know, I think sometimes going back in the past, um, it, it's, a, it's really informative, it, it, both to the public as well as to the people in the profession. Hey, it's Declan here. Thank you for spending your time with us on this episode of Crime Waves Podcast. If you like the episode or learned something, please subscribe, like, or follow us on social media. It would be really appreciated. And join us soon for the next episode of To Catch a Killer.